Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Diplomats are scrambling to extend a temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Despite the pause in fighting, tensions remain high inside Gaza and on Israel's northern border. NPR's Brian Mann reports from a military outpost on the Israel-Lebanon border. The Iran-backed militia group Hezbollah is active just a mile from here inside Lebanon. Israeli soldiers serving at this hilltop base say they come under regular rocket and sniper fire. Zohar Ben-Shushan is a 24-year-old medic. One time I was in the shower and the shooting started and it was really scary. I took my clothes and weapon and went outside so really can attack you anytime. Many towns and kibbutzim in this area have been evacuated because of what Israeli officials say is the heightened threat from Hezbollah. Things have been quieter here in the north during the Israeli-Hamas ceasefire, but soldiers and civilians say they fear an escalation of fighting once the temporary truce ends. Brian Mann, NPR News on the Israel-Lebanon border. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is traveling to Israel tomorrow. He will also visit the Israeli-occupied West Bank. The Japanese Coast Guard says an American military aircraft has crashed off the coast of a southern Japanese island. The Japanese service says six people were aboard and one of them has been killed. The status of the others is not yet known. President Biden is in Colorado. He attended a fundraiser last night in Denver. NPR's Giles Snyder says that later today, Biden is planning to make the case for his economic agenda. President Biden is set to visit CS Wind, a major clean energy player that has benefited from the Inflation Reduction Act, which Biden signed into law over the summer of 2022. This trip to Colorado was supposed to happen last month, but the White House postponed it after the October 7th Hamas attack on southern Israel. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter will be buried today in her hometown of Plains, Georgia. She died earlier this month at the age of 96. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass reports. The tiny rural community of Plains served as the launch pad for the Carter's political aspirations and home base for their prolific post-presidency. At a memorial service, son Chip Carter also remembered Plains as the place he grew up, where his mom once signed up for the donkey basketball fundraiser at Plains High School. And my mother rode her donkey as fast as it would slowly go, <laughs> spun around so she was facing its tail caught the pass and made the winning two points. She was my hero that night, and she's been my hero ever since. After a service at Maranatha Baptist Church, Carter will be buried near the home she shared with her husband since 1961. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The U.S. Department of Education is investigating claims of discrimination at Harvard University. That follows a complaint accusing the university of failing to appropriately respond to reports of harassment against students of Jewish and Israeli ancestry. The probe is part of a larger investigation, which involves six other schools, including Wellesley College. Harvard officials tell the Boston Globe they support the investigation. The decommissioning of the Pilgrim nuclear power station could now take until 2035. The plant's owner announced the four-year delay, its second such announcement since May. Jeanette Barnes reports that could have big implications for the disposal of radioactive water at the plant. 
At the rate that radioactive water is evaporating from Pilgrim, the water and its contaminants could be dispersed into the air before that date ever comes. And that would pull the teeth out of the state's expected permit denial for Pilgrim owner Holtec to discharge the water into Cape Cod Bay. Andrew Gottlieb, executive director of the Association to Preserve Cape Cod, says the company is playing out the clock. You're going to drag this out for a variety of reasons such that you either prevail in court and discharge it in the ocean or it evaporates out. At the end of the day, your problem solves. People on both sides, Holtec included, have said that human exposure to radioactive tritium would be higher from evaporation compared to water discharge. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jeanette Barnes. More people lost insurance coverage from MassHealth last month than ever before. State data show 88,000 people were kicked off the state-sponsored health insurance in October. Program leaders say it's part of an effort to reassess eligibility for all the insurance's members. MassHealth officials say many people lost coverage because they didn't have enough information to determine if they qualify for coverage. Boston police are renewing their call for leads in the unsolved murder of a woman in Brighton. Rita Hester was killed in her apartment 25 years ago. Her murder sparked the creation of the Transgender Day of Remembrance. That day is now celebrated around the world on November 20th. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. The Celtics topped the Chicago Bulls last night at the Garden. The final was 124 to 97. The season next game is Friday when they'll host the Philadelphia 76. Increasing clouds today. It'll be in the upper 30s. Partly cloudy tonight with temperatures in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Center for Audit Quality, committed to enhancing public trust in the economy through assurance. Auditors are serving investors, small businesses, and working Americans. Learn more at thecaq.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. My colleagues and I at NPR and at WBUR are covering the Israel-Hamas war and the resulting humanitarian crisis. Whether we're reporting on the front lines or making sense of the crisis from thousands of miles away, our journalism requires editorial rigor, skill, and sensitivity. Support the journalism you trust. Make your end-of-year gift at WBUR.org. And thanks. Good morning. We're in our year-end fundraiser here at WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi, Morning Edition host, and we're reminding you to include WBUR in your year-end giving because you rely on us throughout the year for the news and companionship that keeps you connected to your community and keeps your community informed at a time when it is so important to know what's going on. And as you heard Tiziana say there, it's so important to have a source that you can trust. 
absolutely every single morning as you are getting ready, as you are putting the kids in the car, as you are maybe making lunches or driving, like, you know, you can turn on the radio or say play WBUR or go to the WBUR app and you will have a source of news that you trust and you can learn what's going on in the world while you are going about your day. That is a valuable service that costs money and we need your support to keep it coming to you. So please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I am so glad this morning to be joined by reporter Deb Becker. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, Rupa. Good morning, everyone. You know, uh, trust, I mean, that's such a such a big word, right? I mean, we're it's something for which we are profoundly grateful uh, that people will give us their trust. Uh, we know that it's not easily earned, and uh, but it sometimes is easily lost. Uh, and so we work hard, really, to retain your trust, especially on big stories. Let, let's think about uh, the war between Israel and Hamas. It's a big story. It's it's a tough story. It requires a lot of skill and sophistication and editorial rigor mm-hmm. that Tiziana just mentioned. How about Mass and Cass, what you've been covering? Yeah, a lot of a lot of big, big stories, but but this this war between Israel and Hamas has also been, and all of our stories really, but this one's been particularly expensive really because we also have to think about keeping all of the people there safe. And uh, we spoke with our CEO, Margaret Lowe, about uh, covering this story and, and what that entails. Let's listen to a little bit of that. NPR has sent dozens of reporters to the region, and hostile environment training is a must for journalists going into a conflict zone, whether it's in the Middle East or Ukraine or anywhere things can get dicey. This training takes several days and covers everything from emergency first aid to situational awareness and how to stay as safe as possible, even in the most dangerous places. And on top of that training, reporters, producers, photographers, fixers, translators, and drivers, those are all the people required for this work. All those people need safety equipment. And in the case of frontline coverage near Israel's border with Gaza or Lebanon or inside Gaza and southern Lebanon, each person has to have a ballistic vest with neck and groin protection to protect the carotid and femoral arteries against shrapnel. They also need a ballistic helmet. They need protective eyewear and first aid kits. It's a lot of stuff, and it's expensive. The kind of protective gear needed for an active war zone can cost thousands of dollars a person. I actually, she said she made those comments in an interview with me that we aired yesterday on the first day of this fundraiser. And I have to say, like we, we do some editing to put stuff on the air, and, and that's just a fraction of what she can just, you know, just roll off at the top of her head. I mean, it's amazing to think about what the leaders of WBUR WBUR and NPR think about and everything they have to think about down to the details to make what happens on the air every day happen. It takes a lot of effort and money, and that's why we need your help. Our journalism is only as strong as your support. So think about how much we add to your life every day. All the times maybe you heard a story on WBUR, and then you went on to maybe mention it to a friend or a colleague or a family member, and it became like the beginning of a conversation that allowed you to make a connection and really 
understand each other in a way you wouldn't have had an opportunity to do unless you listened to WBUR. We need your support to make sure that continues. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I just want to briefly mention Mary Louise Kelly's story a few weeks ago about farmers in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were really in a dangerous situation. Uh, If you haven't had a chance to hear that, that's a driveway moment story. Listen to it now, but pledge now because your money goes to bringing you the news that is important. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com and Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at SolarGardensMA.com and Johnson & Wales University, supporting student and family college exploration with personalized admissions representatives, counselors, and financial planners. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is making his third trip to the Middle East since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. His trip began at NATO headquarters in Brussels, where Blinken said diplomatic work by the U.S. is responsible for the current pause in the fighting in Gaza. We'll be focused on making, uh, doing what we can to extend the pause so that we can continue to get more hostages out, and more humanitarian assistance in. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with the secretary. She joins us now. Uh, Michelle, so what is he hoping to accomplish on this latest trip to the Middle East? Yeah, so he's going to um, Israel and the occupied West Bank, where he'll meet with Palestinian officials. And he has a few goals. A, The U.S. wants to expand the hostage deal that has seen some but not all of the hostages freed by Hamas in exchange for Palestinian prisoners released in Israel and a pause in the fighting. The U.S. wants to see all those hostages out and for the pause to be extended. Blinken also wants to ramp up international aid to Gaza and make sure Israel does much more to protect Palestinian civilians in the next phase of its operation against Hamas. You know, thousands of Palestinian civilians have been killed so far in Gaza. And then he also wants to start talking about the day after. So what is the U.S. saying about what happens to Gaza when the fighting stops? So Blinken has set out kind of a few broad markers. The U.S. doesn't want Israel to reoccupy Gaza, and it doesn't want Palestinians permanently displaced. Blinken says the only way to resolve this, you know, is to have a Palestinian state with Gaza as part of that. But there are a lot of doubts about how the Palestinian Authority, which is based in the West Bank, can reestablish itself in Gaza. Those are the kinds of things that he wants to everyone in the region to start talking about. He also wants to make sure that the conflict doesn't engulf the whole region. Um, Blinken is going to see some Arab foreign ministers when he goes to the climate conference in Dubai at the end of the week, and that will be part of that discussion. Now, Blinken was at uh, NATO headquarters today, or is at NATO headquarters today, to talk about Russia's war in Ukraine. So what are NATO allies saying about the state of that war? Well, NATO Secretary General um, Jens Stoltenberg says that Ukraine has had some big wins in the past year and that Russia has, in his words, fallen backward. He says Russia is weaker, but he says Russia should not be underestimated. It continues to launch drones and missiles at Ukraine's energy infrastructure ahead of what could be another really tough winter. So he says Ukraine needs continued support 
from all of the allies, and that was the big focus of the meetings here today. They also talked about Ukraine's pathway to NATO membership, and they held a first high-level meeting of the so-called NATO-Ukraine Council. Now he has uh, one more high-level meeting on his schedule ahead of his stop in uh, Israel. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, he's going to North Macedonia, which is hosting a meeting of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. That's a 57-nation group that has historically played an important role in human rights in the countries of Europe and the former Soviet Union. Russia's foreign minister is expected to be there, so Ukraine and the Baltic states are boycotting. But Blinken decided to go ahead with the visit, though he's not expected to have any one-on-one -on -one encounters with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. That's NPR's Michelle Kellerman traveling with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Michelle, thanks. Thank you. Now we're going to hear from the brother of one of 180 Palestinian prisoners, many of them women and teenagers, that Israel has released during the pause in fighting with Hamas in exchange for Israeli hostages. Well over half of the Palestinians released were never charged with a crime, according to the Palestinian prisoners' rights group Adamir. Ahmed Hossam Ahmed Khalil's brother, Obeida, was taken prisoner by Israeli troops about a year and a half ago. Now he is back home with his family, and Ahmed joins us now from Ramallah. Hi, Ahmed. Are you with Hi. us? I want to yes. first ask you what it was like to see Arbeida free after a year and a half in Israeli custody. Uh, yeah, of course, it was a shock to us because uh, we didn't know uh, before the day uh, he was released. We just knew uh, in the same day when he was released, we just saw his name in the list. Hmm. So yeah, we were so happy. Was, was uh, he? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah it was uh, uh, beautiful. Take us back to when Abeda was detained. How old was he and what happened? Um, he was uh, 17 years old. Um, he was uh, at home sleeping. So they just suddenly uh, broke, in, broke in our house at 3 a.m. And uh, they stayed uh, till, I think, uh, at, until 6 a.m. Um, and they, they took him without knowing anything. So they just told us that Opada will be okay, he will be fine. And uh, we just want to take him to, uh, just to talk with him and to ask him some questions. But in the way, how did they broke in our house? I don't think that they just wanted to talk to him and to ask him some questions. Uh, they they just uh, blowed up the, the door, even though the door was uh, was opening, was open. So they just didn't try even uh, to open the doors. They just uh, blowed the door and entering the house. Uh, entering in the middle of the uh, in the middle of night, entering the the rooms. Um, so imagine you are sleeping and uh, suddenly wake up with uh, dozens of soldiers in your house above mm -hmm. your head. Um, yeah, it was uh, really scary. Was he ever charged with a crime? I mean, did you ever get an explanation about why he was detained? No, no nothing. So a list provided by Israeli authorities about who was being released claims he's affiliated with Hamas, that he's accused of damaging a security area. These are things that they never told you and they never said to you and he was never charged with. 
Uh, no, uh, well, of, of course you you can understand from the situation that uh, if you have nothing, if you have done nothing, and they just want to uh, to take you in the prison and to fill up their prisons, uh, they will charge you uh, with supporting Hamas or with uh, making danger for, for the area, and uh, you know that you are. Uh, terrorist or something like this. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, an easy part to, to give it to anyone that you are just supporting Hamas and yeah, you, you can't just uh, defend yourself and I, I don't have any proof that uh, I'm not supporting Hamas or uh, I don't know how do how do they uh, how they uh, I mean how, how do they uh, understand that am I that I'm supporting Hamas if I just posted uh, a post on my Facebook or uh, on the social media that I'm, uh, that I'm supporting Gaza or the people of Gaza, they will mm-hmm. consider it that uh, I'm, I'm supporting Hamas or uh, we are supporting that. There are no, no civilians in in Gaza because uh, a lot of them are in, in Hamas group and something like this. Did you ever get to so, see him over the last year and a half when he was detained and, as you said, never charged with a crime? Uh, yeah, we... Uh, we just uh, we had to visit him once at a month or once every two months. So in in the whole seventeen months that he spent in the prison, we just saw him I think four or four or five times uh, because uh, uh, the Israelis have a lot of uh, uh, celebrities and uh, you know a vacation days. Uh, that if uh, and a whole month of celebrations, so you can just make uh, your visit uh, during their celebrations and their uh, uh, their private days and their holidays and something like this. So In the few just, seconds I, we have left, how is he? How is Arbeda? He's okay. He's fine and hoping to to see the all the prisoners uh, released because he's uh, one of the. That's Ahmed Hussam Ahmed Khalil. Israeli officials released his brother Abeda as part of Israel's hostage and prisoner exchange. For more coverage of the war and for analysis and differing viewpoints, you can visit npr.org slash Mideast. The average life expectancy in the U.S. is now 77 and a half years old. New data released today by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reveal something of a rebound after the number of years a person can be expected to live was knocked backwards during the COVID crisis. But as NPR's Ping Wong reports, it's still lower than it was before the pandemic. Elizabeth Arias crunches numbers on life expectancy at CDC. So the good news is that in 2022, life expectancy increased by 1.1 years for the total population. But there is a catch. The not so good news is that the increase in life expectancy only accounted for less than 50% of the loss that was experienced between 2019 and 2021. Those were the prime pandemic years. COVID-19 became the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. And average life expectancy in the U.S. dropped by 2.4 years. Now, even though the trend has reversed, the nation's life expectancy is at the same level it was in 2003. Basically, it's 20 years of lost progress. Arya says the gains in 2022 come mostly from one source— The main positive effect on life expectancy was the decline in 
deaths due to COVID. There are also fewer deaths from heart disease, injury, cancers, and homicide. But those were offset by more deaths from flu and pneumonia, birth problems, kidney disease, and malnutrition. Eileen Crimmins is professor of gerontology at the University of Southern California. She says U.S. life expectancy is terrible compared with other wealthy countries. We started kind of falling uh, relative to other countries in the 1980s, and we have just progressively fallen further and further behind everybody else. Crimin says other wealthy countries in Europe and Asia do much better on preventing early deaths from heart disease, gun violence, giving birth, infectious diseases. That was Ping Wang on NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, playing now through December 10th at The Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org, and BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu slash met. Millions of people depend on the NPR network. We depend on you. Your support is central to our journalistic integrity. Donate to this station today, and thank you. We're in our year-end fundraiser here on WBUR's Morning Edition, and we're asking you to support WBUR as you think about your year-end contributions to the organizations that are meaningful in your life and that you depend on throughout the year. Think about the high-quality journalism we bring you every single morning at a time when facts have never been more important in upholding democracy. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with reporter Deb Becker. Good morning. And boy, do we have a great thank you gift this morning. If you can do your part and make your pledge for the news, make your pledge for the terrific reporting from everyone. But but I really encourage you to listen to a report that Mary Louise Kelly just did uh, from the West Bank a few weeks ago about the uh, what's happening uh, in the war between Israel and Hamas. It's a it's really some amazing reporting. Go back and listen to that and, and think about all the resources that it took to bring you that kind of reporting and make your pledge, do your part to keep that type of journalism coming. And if you can make a pledge of $12 a month right now, we will send you as our thanks a dumpling making class uh, at May May at their South Boston uh, cooking factory uh, classroom. It's really incredible. You'll get it in time for the holidays. So maybe you know someone who would like this as a gift. And that's for your $12 a month pledge for the news. That's it. And we'll give you this gift certificate to a dumpling making class at Maymay. Here's the number to call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. But but think dumplings right now and <laughs> think think about really how wonderful it would be uh, for you to have that or, or to give it as a gift. We spoke with uh, Irene Lee, who's with Maymay, about this class and about really what cooking means in terms of gathering people. Let's listen. At Maymay, we like to say dumplings make the world go round because every culture and cuisine has its own version of a dumpling, whether it is an empanada or a pastelito or a veroniki. And I think there's something so universal about eating these little kind of 
packages stuffed with love. And so we think that selling dumplings, teaching people how to make dumplings, and generally gathering people around that food stuff is always going to be a success. These dumpling classes from May may come with a contribution again of $12 a month or $144 as a one-time gift. You'll have expert guidance as you learn all the folding, shaping, and searing that go into making a great dumpling. Oh my gosh, I can almost smell it and <laughs> taste it as I say it. There, there will be plenty for you to take home, and we should also mention there are vegan and gluten-free options too. These dumplings mix traditional Chinese flavors with flavors from New England, and it's a great opportunity to support WBUR and a woman-owned business. Chef Irene Lee also says dumplings are a great way great way to limit food waste. So learn more about that by going to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You know, if you were going to buy this class, it would be $144. Hmm. Uh, so if you were going to give that gift to someone, it would cost $144. If you make a $12 a month contribution to the news right now, we will send you that dumpling making class as our thanks. You can use it for yourself. You can gift it for the holidays, whatever you'd like to do. But it really is, it's a wonderful business. It's a wonderful story and a wonderful thing to learn. <laughs> I liked little little pockets of love. <laughs> that is how is how Irene Lee described it, and uh, that could be yours. But really, what will be yours is the satisfaction of knowing that you're contributing to the journalism that you count on to be better informed about the world, to help you understand different perspectives. Pledge for that today during this December fund drive, because this is where the revenue comes from for us to be able to keep the news and information coming to you. Think about the companionship we bring you every morning. Think about what Irene Lee was saying about how we gather. We gather in the radio. When we bring you to the radio, this is what we come together and do community. This is our community. It only happens with your support. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From the FDA, its Remove the Risk campaign encourages people to dispose of the unused, unwanted, and expired opioid medications in their homes. Learn more at fda.gov slash remove the risk. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. This is day six of a pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. More exchanges of hostages, prisoners, and detainees are expected today. Later today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is planning to speak out against anti-Semitism in the U.S. amid that war between Israel and Hamas. Here's NPR's Giles Snyder. 
Senator Schumer said in a post on X, the former Twitter, that anti-Semitism is a crisis in the U.S., and that as the country's highest-ranking elected Jewish official, he feels compelled to speak about it. A recent survey by the Anti-Defamation League says more than 70 percent of Americans agree with Schumer, but the group also documented more than 830 anti-Semitic incidents in the month following the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. President Biden will be traveling to Colorado today, as NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports. First, he's going to visit a plant owned by the largest wind turbine tower manufacturer in the world. The South Korean-based company is called CS Wind, and they say that thanks to Biden's major climate and jobs bill, they're adding hundreds of jobs in the state in the next few years. And secondly, Pueblo is in Colorado's third congressional district, which is represented by right-wing Republican Lauren Boebert. She's been a prominent critic of President Biden, particularly on this climate and jobs bill, which she says should be repealed. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering tightening the state's already strict gun laws. A joint legislative committee heard hours of testimony yesterday on nearly 60 bills. State Representative David Lansky, a Democrat from Natick, says the state needs to tighten its assault weapons ban and restrict where guns can be carried. Massachusetts in general has good firearm laws. We really do. But there are loopholes that we need to fill. There are areas where we have fallen behind other states. And our first duty as elected officials, quite frankly, is to protect the public safety. Jim Wallace from the Gun Owners Action League spoke against many of the bills being considered. He believes the laws would criminalize responsible gun ownership without addressing crime. The gun laws are an absolute failure. They do nothing to help the inner cities. All they do is keep us on, a, on our tiptoes that we may be a felon in waiting. The criminals could care less about this stuff. The Massachusetts House passed a wide-ranging gun reform package this fall. The state Senate is expected to reveal its version early next year. The Boston City Council is forming a new committee today focused on the prevention of domestic violence and sexual assault. Data show more than 30 percent of men and women in the state experience some form of violence by intimate partners during their lifetime. Council leaders say the committee will focus on finding ways to better support victims. That includes coming up with new strategies for preventing and reporting violence. A move to ban gas-powered leaf blowers is moving forward in Cambridge. The city's ordinance committee tells the Boston Herald it voted to start phasing out the equipment for commercial use in 2026. Residents would need to convert to electric leaf blowers by 2025. The city council is expected to vote on the proposal by the end of the year. Gas-powered leaf blowers are already banned in Concord, Belmont, and Arlington. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. In sports, okay, in weather... It'll grow increasingly overcast today. High temperatures will only be in the upper 30s. Partly cloudy tonight, and it falls to the upper 20s. Warmer tomorrow with highs in the mid-40s, and it'll be sunny. It's 29 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from StoryWorth. 
Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. The families of three college students of Palestinian descent who were shot over the weekend in Vermont are calling it a crime fueled by hate. But so far, police in Burlington say they don't have information to suggest what the motive for the attack was. Still, the shooting surfaces long-standing and unique issues in tracking possible hate crimes committed against Arab Americans. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef joins us to discuss this. Good morning. Hi, Leila. So, Odette, the Burlington police chief says the victims were speaking a mix of Arabic and English, and two of them were wearing Palestinian keffiyeh scarves when they were shot. But that doesn't suggest anything about the motive, the chief said. Can you explain that a bit? Well, police are saying they don't have, quote, statements or remarks by the suspect. Um, And to be clear, it would not be a crime on its own, you know, for someone to accost others with derogatory or hateful speech. But when a crime is committed, that kind of speech can be really important evidence to make the case that it's a hate crime. And you'll be surprised, Leila, at how this can affect the way that crimes end up being categorized. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one notable example, the 2016 mass shooting at Pulse nightclub in uh, Orlando. This was a gay nightclub. Right. Um, this shooting left 49 people dead. And many believe that the selection of that venue Uh, made it obvious that the perpetrator was motivated out of hate toward the LGBT community. But the FBI did not count that as a hate crime um, because the investigation simply didn't provide the evidence that law enforcement needed to show that the crime was tied to a hatred of gay people. Hmm. What about Arab Americans in particular? What does the data show about hate crimes affecting them? So the Arab American story is unique. um, And For this, you need a little context. So the FBI started releasing nationwide data on hate crimes in 1992. And what's interesting is that when the database was being developed, there was a category to keep track of anti-Arab hate crimes. Um, This was known as Bias Code 31. But prior to the release of that first nationwide report, that code was removed. Oh. And the FBI numbers didn't report anti-Arab hate crimes at all, really until 2015, uh, when Bias Code 31 was finally reintroduced. Um, Here's Maya Berry. She's with the Arab American Institute. You still had some states that continued to collect that data on anti-Arab, but it was simply recoded as other ethnicity. So we were literally rendered invisible in the hate crime data for decades. And as you could imagine, Leila, this has meant that at moments when we know that anti-Arab sentiment is high, um, such as, you know, the period following 9-11, yeah. there hasn't been any real tracking of those numbers. But why? Why was that code removed and these crimes not tracked for all those years? I reached out to the FBI um, and I haven't heard back. And it's worth noting that FBI hate crime numbers are widely believed to be a significant undercount. Um, But still, Barry argues that 
the omission of this category has had real implications, um, namely that local law enforcement haven't been trained to identify hate crimes against Arab Americans. Mm -hmm. And this can compound other issues like the mistrust between Arab American communities and police that came out of post 9-11 surveillance programs. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent, Odette Youssef. Thanks, Odette. Thank you. Talking about climate change can be a tough job, especially where audiences may be more skeptical. Climatologists and meteorologists across the Midwest and Great Plains say they're facing stress, burnout, and sometimes even death threats. Here's Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rembert. Back in 2021, Chris Glongener was excited to start his new job as chief meteorologist at a TV station in Iowa. He was moving from Boston to connect the dots between daily weather and climate change, something he'd honed over more than 15 years, including covering flooding in New Hampshire. What's causing it? It's a combination of rising sea level and astronomically high tide. In Iowa, it got some viewers grumbling. It was, you know, I don't need to hear your liberal conspiracy theories on our air. Take the politics out of your forecast. He says that wasn't surprising. He expected pushback. I just didn't expect the magnitude and how quickly it went off the rails. In summer 2022, Glonginer started receiving a steady flow of harassing emails. In one, the sender asked for his address and said, we conservative Iowans would like to give you an Iowan welcome you will never forget. His bosses provided security to trail him to and from work, but Glonginer says he still felt unsafe. You don't, you never know what hill somebody is willing to die on. Eventually, it became too much. After two years, Glonginer moved back to Massachusetts to be closer to his family and took a job focused on climate solutions. His experience echoes the treatment other officials like election workers, educators, and public health experts have faced in recent years. While resistant voices can be loud, 90% of Americans are still open to learning about climate change from experts, according to Ed Maybach with the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University. Even in very conservative communities across America, their audiences have responded with overwhelming appreciation for the effort they're making. But skepticism and hostility from the minority can be a challenge, especially in conservative states. I talked to climatologists and meteorologists in seven states who have encountered strong resistance, including Melissa Widhelm, who spent years presenting the science to communities in Indiana. Every time you went out, you just weren't sure what you were going to get. You know, you always went in having to mentally prepare yourself that somebody could be there to cause trouble. Sometimes she thinks her job might be easier in a liberal state. But then she tells herself, there's nowhere else that is more important to do this work than right here in Indiana, because otherwise it would not be talked about at all. In Nebraska, the uphill battle became too exhausting for Martha Durr, who recently resigned as the state's climatologist. She says she didn't feel she had anything left to give the job. I went to school to become a scientist. And what I found myself doing the most of in this role is almost being a therapist and helping people through climate change. For nearly eight years, she said she tried to be empathetic and patient. She pointed out local impacts that people could see in their own backyards. It gets tiring trying to convince people that science is real. If you want to do that, you can go talk to somebody else. But I'm not at a place where I want to keep doing this. Before he left his job in Iowa, Glonginer talked on air about the harassment he faced. 
Afterward, he received hundreds of messages from grateful viewers, which he printed out. You were very honest in discussing climate change, which I appreciated. So sorry that you were harassed by the extremists out there. Fort Dodge, Iowa. He hopes someone will help Iowans understand climate change, but it won't be him. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Rembert in Lincoln, Nebraska. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for 55 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. And Kaiba, providing technology solutions to government agencies in the health and human services space. Kaiba, K-Y-Y-B-A dot Climate change dominated the headlines this year. Wildfires stoked by Hurricane Dora spread across the island of Maui. A dangerously large plume of moisture known as an atmospheric river slams into the region. But there were also stories of hope. This hotline helps people figure out how to save important objects and buildings after disasters. Invest in the future of climate change coverage on NPR and this station. Here's how. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're in our year-end fundraiser here on WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with reporter Deb Becker reminding you that listeners make up the largest share of WBUR's funding. We need you to do your part because our future is not guaranteed. We have a goal of raising $20,000 by 9 o'clock this morning, so we're asking you to think about what part of that you can give to help us continue to keep you and your community informed. Go to WBUR.org or, again, call 1-800-909-9287. And here's that. Good morning. Uh, What part of that can you give? That's what we want you to think about, because really you're part of a larger effort here. You're part of a public radio community here that where everyone contributes and then everyone benefits from the journalism that we provide you with every single day. So call now. Make that pledge. We've got, what, an hour and 15 minutes left to try to reach that $20,000 goal. What can you do toward that? Maybe it's $20. Maybe it's $2,000. Whatever it is, do it now. Help us reach that goal because really it's a goal that we set to be able to know that we'll be on track during this fundraiser to meet our budget, a budget we set to have the resources to better serve you. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And you know what, Rupa, we have not mentioned this sweepstakes mm-hmm. that we have going on, which is really, I could just start daydreaming right now, <laughs> especially on this cold morning. How about a trip? anywhere in the world. How about somewhere really warm and wonderful right now? (laughs) Because someone is going to win this sweepstakes. One lucky listener is going to win this. You will be entered in a drawing to win a $10,000 voucher from CBT Travel to go anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Where would you go? Oh, uh, maybe Ireland. Australia, oh. New Zealand has been big. Tiziana was talking a lot about New Zealand, and mm. that was very convincing. <laughs> <laughs> so a wonderful trip might be yours. Think about where you would like to go, and perhaps you'll be the lucky winner who takes this trip, this $10,000 travel voucher from CBT Travel, to use anywhere. That's our sweepstakes during this year-end fun drive. But really, the real winners are you, the listeners, who get the deep, nuanced, journalism every day here on WBUR. We know you count on us. We're counting on you right now. 
So that's the big one. I mean, sweepstakes anywhere in the world. Dumplings doesn't sound like a lot next to that, but man, dumplings, <laughs> dumpling. What's better than dumplings? That is, this is. I'm talking about another thank you gift we have for you this morning. When you give twelve dollars a month or a one-time gift of hundred and forty-four dollars, you can learn how to make May May dumplings from one of our well-known Boston chefs, Irene Lee. Your gift will make it possible for us to bring you more of the high-quality journalism you rely on. Meanwhile, you will you will learn how to make what Lee calls little pockets of love, because, again, that's basically what dumplings are. So do your part to uphold democracy by making sure there's a free source of high-quality journalism for your community and learn how to make dumplings from Irene Lee, May May Dumplings, which is locally famous. It's part, it's multiple ways we are offering you to connect to your community. There's also the sweepstakes, but I'm big on dumplings right now, so I'm going to keep going on the dumplings. Learn how to make dumplings and make it for yourself and your family or give it as a gift and have them make you dumplings. Call one 800 or go to WBUR.org. And thank you so much for your support. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. It's a morning edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm A. Martinez. Gray wolves were once plentiful in Colorado before they were wiped out by hunting. They played an important role in the ecosystem. And in 2020, Coloradans voted to reintroduce gray wolves to the state. Now, the first group is set to be released onto the west slope of the Rocky Mountains. But it's not clear whether there are too many people in Colorado for wolves to thrive. Here's NPR's Kirk Sigler. The bright lights of Denver are shining like diamonds. Few western states have been romanticized more for their beauty than Colorado. You are Colorado. Guess he'd rather be in Colorado. Back in John Denver's 1970s heyday, there were barely two million Coloradans. But in the last decade alone, the state's population grew at twice the national rate. Tens of thousands of cars a day drive these crowded mountain highways. So could a wolf that may have to roam 30 miles a day to find food survive here now? Lots of barriers. I mean, just thinking about how wolves would try to even cross Interstate 70 through this canyon right here with all these trucks and cars racing by. West of Glenwood Canyon, Perry Will, a retired Colorado game warden of 40 years, is standing at a popular fishing area along the interstate. I'll be quite honest, we're crowding six million people in the state of Colorado. We're not Wyoming, we're not Idaho, we're not Montana. I wish we were, right? In a black cowboy hat and horseshoe mustache, Will is talking about those more rural states where the federal government reintroduced wolves in the 1990s after decades of studies. But he calls what happened here biology by ballot box. In 2020, Colorado voters passed a proposition requiring wolves to be reintroduced to the land within three years. I've been a wildlife advocate my whole life. It doesn't really matter whether you love wolves or hate wolves, right? It's not about that. I don't think it's fair to the species. I think they're going to be in constant conflict in this state. 
For skeptics like Will, there's irony. Colorado used to be a red state where wolf reintroduction never would have flown. Now its booming population is liberal enough to support it, but is it now too crowded for wolves to have a chance? Joanna Lambert doesn't think so. In Boulder, she's a wildlife biology professor at the University of Colorado and helped write the ballot measure. Wolves are superb dispersers. Wolves are highly intelligent, they're adaptable, they're flexible, and if given half a chance, they do well. Lambert is also a well-known expert on wolves in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, where she says the human population has also grown a lot since the 90s, but generally the wolves have adapted. It turns out they don't like to be around humans. They're not going to be running around in neighborhoods, right? And they're not going to be running around in the streets of Aspen. They're going to be remaining in areas where they can access their prey base. Like elk, which Colorado happens to have more of than any other western state, some 300,000. The wolves that will initially be relocated here from Oregon are adapted to eating elk. State wildlife officials spent the last three years holding public forums. They convened a citizen group with polar opposite views on the wild canines, which helped write a management plan that's widely seen as a compromise. We know that wolves will do well here. Reed DeWalt with Colorado Parks and Wildlife is helping lead the reintroduction. We wanted to make sure this was from the get-go done with the citizens of Colorado and not done to the citizens of Colorado. The wolves will be considered experimental under the Federal Endangered Species Act, meaning they can be harassed or killed if they're causing problems with, say, livestock. But the story of wolves in Colorado today feels a lot different than the clashes between ranchers and environmentalists that have dominated headlines in the West for years. It's chilly this morning. One frigid morning near the Breckenridge Ski Resort, Orion Virtel stood at a favorite trailhead at the edge of a neighborhood of condos, restaurants, and a Whole Foods. It's frightening. It's frightening to think of taking your children, your family, your pets, and just trying to go on a day hike. Even if you bring a weapon, they come in packs. You better be quick. In the 30 years since wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone, they've never attacked humans. Still, Vertel, a local real estate agent, says he'll think twice about taking his young son backpacking if wolves will be around. He thinks voters were ill-informed and thought the canines would get released into some faraway wilderness. I don't think anybody was thinking that they would be released anywhere near residential areas. There's still a lot of trepidation, if not fear, here over wolves returning to a land that's radically changed since the 1940s. Some of the best wolf habitat also happens to be fragmented by luxury homes, resorts, and other legacy development like ranches. Oh, there's a deer. This is gorgeous. Yeah, it really is. In the Crystal River Valley near Aspen, rancher Francie Jacober keeps close tabs on a resident elk herd. With few predators around, they've grown accustomed to grazing leisurely on the cattle pastures beneath the towering Mount Sopris. Then they drop down into the river, which you can see is right over the edge there. You can see the cottonwoods. Jacober chairs the Pitkin County Commission and also sat on that state wolf group. She's an outlier in the ranching world in that she's a reintroduction supporter. I'm hoping that they will scatter the elk, make them move, return them to their migratory habits. The national forests that surround this picturesque valley are among the most visited in the nation. Elk hunting, mountain biking, and internationally famous ski resorts are all big business here. But Jacober says it's wilder than it looks. You know, along the highways, we have a lot of development. But if you get in an airplane and you fly over out here, there's a lot of wilderness, a lot of untouched area. And that's where the wolves are going to be. And like it or not, wolves are coming back to Colorado. 
A few have already migrated down from Yellowstone. Lately, one was spotted just over the New Mexico border, too. This natural dispersion comes as the state plans to reintroduce 10 more by December 31st. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Carbondale, Colorado. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldig. And I'm A. Martinez. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Daryl C. Murphy there, host of our daily podcast, The Comment, talking about the strong foundation of listener support we need you to be part of. We're in our year-end fundraiser here on WBUR's Morning Edition, and we're asking you to think about how we may help you make sense of the world and your neighborhood absolutely every single day. We are the fabric of your day, and this is when we come back to you to ask you to do your part in making sure this service continues for you and your community at the level you depend on. We need your help to reach a $20,000 goal by 9 o'clock this morning. That's $20,000 by 9 o'clock. That may sound big to you, but when you join with all the other people listening and do your part, it's something we can realistically tackle together. So think about how much you can help. Do what's comfortable for you. Join with everyone else who takes an active part in making sure WBUR is there for you and your community. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with reporter Deb Becker. Hello there. Hello, everyone. It's day two of WBUR's December fundraiser. Thanks for being with us. We're only taking a couple of minutes right now to remind you how important you are to helping us have the resources that we need uh, to bring you the news. We can't do it without you, quite simply. You know, we heard from Daryl C. Murphy from our daily podcast, The Common, and The Common, the podcast, is really one example of how WBUR has been able to grow and to evolve, and that's all because of contributions from listeners just like you. We've found new ways to bring you our content, to bring you our journalism, to make it easier for you to access all of the work that we do every day, but that takes money. It takes money to grow and expand and to develop new platforms for our journalism. So help us have the resources that we need to continue to do this in this ever-changing technological landscape, in this ever-changing world with bigger stories. If you know that you appreciate the deep, nuanced reporting that WBUR brings you every single day, 24 hours a day, then you know it's expensive. It's, It's quality journalism, and it costs money to do it. We're counting on you to help us have the resources to do it today by making a pledge and help us reach that $20,000 goal because we've got just about an hour to do so. Here's the number. It's 1-800-909-9287. The website where you can pledge is WBUR.org. And we do have ways to say thank you, some really fun ways to say thank you. When you give $12 a month or a one-time gift of $144, 
you can choose a gift of a certificate for you or someone else you give this gift to to enjoy a dumpling class at the Dumpling Factory classroom in South Boston. And there's a lot of flexibility. There are vegan and gluten-free options. And there are classes on weekday evenings and weekend afternoons and evenings. You can find when is right for you or, or the person you give this to can find when this is right for you. And they can learn how to make Maymay dumplings, which are little pockets of love because dumplings are one of the best things in the world. They are little bites of heaven, and you will learn how to make them. And that is an incredible skill that is so valuable. So please go to do your, do your part to get us to this $20,000 goal. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doors Duke Foundation. I'm executive editor for News Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The families of Israeli hostages released from Hamas continue to share stories of their relatives' captivity. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. Some relatives have spoken to media outlets. Gidon Haiman says his 84-year-old mother, Ditsa, who has pre-existing conditions, did not receive medical treatment in Gaza. Another is in stable condition at the hospital, but her family says her neurological condition is still unclear. Devorah Cohen says her 12-year-old nephew, Eitan, told the family his captors used their guns to threaten crying Israeli children to be quiet. His father and the fathers of many other released children are still being held in Gaza. More hostages are expected to be released today. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Authorities in Burlington, Vermont, are continuing to investigate last weekend's triple shooting of three college students. All are of Palestinian descent. Investigators, including the FBI, are looking into a possible hate crime. A suspect has been charged with attempted murder. He's pleaded not guilty. Burlington, Vermont, Mayor Mira Weinberger joined a candlelight vigil last night to honor the students. Saturday's events, the actions of one person uh, at this incredibly sensitive time um, uh, really sent a message of, of hate. And I think what tonight's visual was about is to uh, <clears throat> say to the students that Burlingtonians uh, are support them and feel terrible that this happened. That audio is courtesy of WVNY WFFFTV. President Biden and his campaign are making a more forceful effort to draw a contrast with former President Donald Trump. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, Biden has said he expects that Trump will be the Republican presidential nominee. Over the long holiday weekend, when not a lot of people were paying attention, former President Trump posted on his social media site that he was seriously looking for alternatives to the Affordable Care Act and not giving up on repealing Obamacare, something he failed to do while president. Well, President Biden wasn't about to let that go unnoticed. And my predecessors, once again, God love him, 
call for cuts that could rip away health insurance for tens of millions of Americans. It is part of a larger strategy to drive coverage of what Trump is saying out on the campaign trail, because Biden's campaign sees that contrast benefiting the president's reelection effort. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter will be buried today in her hometown of Plains, Georgia. Today is the third of three days of memorial observations for her. All five living First Ladies attended a memorial tribute yesterday for Mrs. Carter. So did President Biden. Today's burial will be private. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The U.S. Department of Education is expanding an ongoing discrimination investigation to include Harvard. That follows a complaint accusing the school of failing to appropriately respond to reports of harassment against students of Jewish and Israeli ancestry. Six other schools are involved in the larger probe, including Wellesley College. Harvard officials tell the Boston Globe they support the investigation. A new report finds that businesses owned by people of color in Massachusetts were affected by a lack of funding last year. That's compared to before the pandemic and compared to white business owners. A report from the Boston Foundation shows that small businesses owned by people of color were less likely to be able to get loans. Officials say the capital gap can be addressed by building trust in communities and addressing historic disparities. A Cape Cod nonprofit will use a $20,000 grant to preserve histories of migrant communities. The Migrant Communities Project has worked with groups like the Cape Verdean Club and the Portuguese American Association to record their history. Anthropologist Miguel Moniz is the project's executive director. He says it's important for members of those communities to be the ones who tell their stories. When you have people from communities participating in the telling of their own narratives. I think that it is definitely a a richer picture and certainly uh, a viewpoint that one would not get when someone, you know, is examining things from the outside. The grant is from Mass Humanities. It'll be used to put recordings and transcripts of interviews online. A thousand holiday care packages will head out from Logan Airport today to active duty military members around the world. They'll be assembled by about 50 volunteers from the USO, Massport, and Boston-based Suffolk Construction. Suffolk Executive Vice President Sam Slayman says this is a way to show appreciation to service members and their families. We're not sending like cookies and things like that. The USO is very strict on what to send. They want basically to send necessity, totally things that servicemen can use. The packages should arrive in plenty of time before the holidays. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Swan Galleries with an auction of modern and post-war art on November 30th featuring works from the early 1900s through mid-century modernism with sculpture and paintings. Catalog, bidding, and exhibition information at swanauctiongalleries.com and on the Swan app. The Celtics beat the Chicago Bulls 124-97 last night at the Garden. The seas are now off until Friday. That's when they'll host the Philadelphia 76ers. Increasing clouds today. It'll be in the upper 30s. Partly cloudy tonight with temperatures in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. Truth, independence, fairness, transparency, respect, excellence. NPR. Donate. Thanks. Those are some powerful words, powerful words that we're asking you to keep in mind as we are in our year-end fundraiser here on WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Morning Edition host here with Rupa Shanoi here with reporter Deb Becker. And we want to say first, good morning. And then we're reminding you that listeners make up the largest share of WBUR's funding. We need you to do your part because our future is not guaranteed. And we have a goal of raising $20,000 by 9 o'clock, and that is coming up fast. We have less than an hour. It sounds big, but when you join with the community of listeners who make WBUR possible and step up to take responsibility for what's on the radio seven days a week, 24 hours a day, we can make it happen. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's Deb. Good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you if you've already contributed during this December Fund Drive. But if you haven't, we can't stress enough how important you are to our journalism. We couldn't do it. We just could not do it without your support. You are the largest share of funding for WBUR and for our journalism, especially the local journalism that we know so many of you count on. Why do you tune in? You tune in to find out what's happening, what's happening in the world, and what's happening in your community. We want to continue to bring you the kind of information that you trust, that you tune into, because you know we're telling you things that you need to know and should know and, and might even enjoy knowing in certain <laughs> t- certain cases. <laughs> so if you want us to keep doing that and to stay strong, make your pledge today. The number is one 800 909 or the website's WBUR.org. And you know, Rupa, our CEO, Margaret Lowe, I believe talked with you recently about why listeners support generally and your support. You, uh, you supporting WBUR is so important. Let's listen. WBUR and NPR will always be free. We're a public service. And this is especially relevant today because we now live in a world where only people who can afford a subscription have access to many of the most credible, high-quality news sources. And in my mind, that further divides the haves and have-nots. And in contrast, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. Sustaining members provide the support we need to make that possible and to ensure that we're here today and tomorrow and for generations to come to cover the most consequential issues of our time and to make Boston an even better place to live. Margaret really hit it on the head there that this is a way that you connect with others and make sure that people who maybe can't don't have the resources to support us, especially at a time where right now when a lot of people are struggling, you make it possible for them to stay informed from a high quality source of news that is also a pillar of the community and keeps all of us connected. So think about how much you depend on WBUR every day for the news you need to understand the world from the conflict between Israel and Hamas, which is changing in every moment, to climate change and the deep division in Congress. 
You also depend on us for lighter stories, stories that keep you going and lift you up amid these times that can feel pretty dark. So that is what you support when you give to WBUR. And we also have ways to say thank you. When you give $12 a month or a one-time gift of $144, you can choose a gift to enjoy a dumpling class at the Dumpling Factory classroom in South Boston. These are classes given by Chef Irene Lee. She is a semi-famous, I'll I'll go ahead and say famous chef in Boston. And these dumplings are certainly famous in the farmer's markets throughout Boston. I know I've bought the dumplings there at several farmer's markets. There are vegan and gluten-free options. There are classes on weekday evenings and on weekends. You learn how to make these little pockets of love that everyone, everyone loves dumplings. Who doesn't love dumplings? And that is what one of the many gifts you can choose from when you support WBUR. So you get two things at once. You get the satisfaction of knowing that you provide this service for your community, and you get this awesome class to learn how to make dumplings from this amazing chef in the Boston area. So go to WBUR.org or call one 800 909 And we also should mention our sweepstakes. One lucky listener is going to win this sweepstakes. It's a trip of your design, a customized $10,000 trip anywhere in the world, courtesy of CBT Travel. That could be yours. Someone's going to win that sweepstakes. And thanks to the folks at CBT Travel for donating this $10,000 trip for you to be able to design to go wherever you'd like. Maybe that'll be yours, but you got to call. you got to pledge. <laughs> 1-800-909-9287 is the number. WBUR.org. Thank you. WBUR supporters include AMS and the Weather Channel with the power of precipitation. New England weather is predictably unpredictable. Learn how water vapor affects our local weather with scientists from Brown, Princeton, and the Weather Channel. December 1st at City Space. Delicious food and drinks included. Tickets at itowardsthesky.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. The fragile pause in the fighting between Israel and Hamas is in its sixth day, with more hostages and prisoner exchanges expected today. The original four-day ceasefire that began on Friday was extended by two days to allow those additional releases. That extension ends today unless another is approved by both sides. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza remains dire, and NPR's Brian Mann joins us from Tel Aviv to discuss all this. Hi, Brian. Hi, Leila. So 10 more Israelis and two foreign hostages taken in the October 7 attack were released by Hamas. Three of the 10 Israelis were members of one family. In exchange, Israel freed 30 Palestinian prisoners. Officials in Qatar who helped negotiate uh, the swap said 15 of those freed were women, 15 others were minors. Now, if this truce holds, we expect more people on both sides to come home later today. Well, people are scrambling to make that happen. High-level talks are underway. Uh, Israeli media reports a deal's close. Uh, U.S. officials told NPR CIA Director William Burns has been in Qatar for more high-level meetings with Israel. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is also going to be visiting the Middle East this week. 
while Israel signaled an openness to a longer pause in exchange for more freed hostages, it's important to say Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has insisted that Israel plans to resume the fighting and crush Hamas when this temporary truce ends. Back to Lebanese group Hezbollah is operating. What did you see there? Things have been quieter and quieter since with Hamas went into effect, but the military situation remains incredibly tense. I visited an Israeli army unit in a forward operating base right on the Lebanon border where they've been exchanging fire with Hezbollah. And I spoke with Max Sherman. He's a Jewish-American college student from Tampa Bay, Florida, who's volunteering in the Israeli military during this crisis. You know, at first when I was here, it was a bit scary. You know, you were sitting drinking some tea and all of a sudden missiles get shot at you and, and rockets are being thrown over and anything that could happen in a second, basically. Again, things have been quieter in recent days, but a lot of Israeli communities in the north have been evacuated because of the threat from Hezbollah. U.S. officials are scrambling to avoid a wider conflict beyond the war with Hamas and Gaza. But a lot of people I spoke to in the north told me they worry that war with Hezbollah is likely when the fighting with Hamas resumes as expected. What about the humanitarian situation in Gaza? I mean, it's so dire. I know aid groups are using this pause to rush food and supplies to Palestinian civilians trapped there. Is that enough? Trucks and ambulances are moving faster across the border from Egypt, ramping up the relief operation. But, you know, there are two million Palestinians in Gaza, more than a million of them displaced. According to United Nations officials, Gaza's health care system has been destroyed by the fighting. I spoke to Dr. Margaret Harris with the World Health Organization, who's helping with the release effort. And to give a sense of the scale of this crisis, Layla, she pointed to just one factor, the number of pregnant Palestinian women in Gaza who can't get any medical help. 200 babies a day are being born with no medical support, where they don't have adequate hygiene, they don't have adequate water. And so Harris says civilian Palestinians in Gaza don't just need a few more days of peace. They need months and years. But again, right now, the ceasefire could end as early as midnight tonight. That's NPR's Brian Mann in Tel Aviv. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. According to polls, the GOP race for 2024 continues to show former President Donald Trump as the consistent favorite. Now, with just under seven weeks until the first contest of the GOP primary season, billionaire Republican donor Charles Koch is looking to change that. Koch's political network, Americans for Prosperity Action, is throwing its weight behind former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who's been steadily rising in popularity among Republicans. Here to tell us what the endorsement means is GOP strategist Ron Bonjean. Ron, so how big of a win is this for Nikki Haley? Hey, it's great to be here. Um, This is a huge win for Nikki Haley to have the grassroots mobilization of support from americans for prosperity is significant Um, she does not have the infrastructure or the funding to uh, keep the momentum going in her campaign to get out the vote which is going to be really important in these primary states and what afp does is they bring a lot of resources to the table get out you know in terms of grassroots mobilization. So it's really a boost for her and frankly a blow to Ron DeSantis who is hoping to get this get this endorsement. The money aspect of this, what does that mean in terms of dollars? More commercials, more ads, more campaign workers, what does that mean? I think it means all of the above. Um, it really depends on what it, where it pays going to put their money, but it's really about getting out the vote. So if that means it's going to be some ads, I'm sure there's going to be um, you know, a lot of enthusiasm generated by AFP to get their volunteers out 
and help organize the get out to vote effort. That's something any candidate would would absolutely um, you know give anything to have. And Nikki Haley now has it. Um, the question is, can she? Um, you know, surmount Donald Trump's massive lead, and uh, you know yeah. the time to, to the time to endorse Nikki Haley is now. The timing is right because, you know, any 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 more moment, any more days that go by, you really lose momentum in developing that infrastructure. How many Republican voters, Ron, would you say look at uh, Charles Koch's endorsement and say, "Hmm, maybe I should send my donation Nikki Haley's way." You know, that's a really great question. I think it really depends on how the volunteers, the AFP volunteers, um, you know, work on getting out of the boat and drumming up the enthusiasm. You know, I, I don't know if there's strong name ID with Charles Koch and, and voters out there, but there is huge uh, identification on the ground between the volunteers that know their local communities and know how to know how to work you know, work their precincts and getting out that vote. And that's what really matters. You mentioned how much of a blow this is to uh, Ron DeSantis. Um, how does he spin this? Well, it's really difficult for him. I know I've seen DeSantis um, be critical of of this decision, um, you know, and trying to redirect it and, and throw some cold water on AFP and, and, and the Coke network. However, they did endorse uh, Ron DeSantis uh, in another capacity. Um, I think you know when he was running for governor of yeah. Florida. Um, so I mean, it's it's really difficult for him to criticize this decision. If I were him, I would just focus on continuing to try to get out my message. Now, the one name we haven't mentioned yet is Donald Trump, and a spokesman for Donald Trump uh, dismissed the news. Um, how worried though should the Trump campaign be, considering? That, uh, you know, the Iowa caucuses are coming up and he still has a big lead, though. Yeah, he definitely has a big lead and I wouldn't take anything for granted as a front runner. Um, I think that's why they're responding um, to this endorsement and, and, and trying to be really critical of it to communicate to Trump voters that he's still, you know, he's still confident he can win this primary. Um, so, uh, you know, I, if I were them, I would be I would be concerned about you know, uh, a candidate getting this type of organizational support. Concerned privately, but publicly still bluster, I would assume, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You have to do that. Exactly. GOP strategist Ron Bonjean. Thanks a lot. Thank you. The billionaire investor Charlie Munger has died. He was 99 years old. As NPR's David Gura reports, Munger wasn't as well known as his professional partner Warren Buffett, but he was instrumental in building the investment company Berkshire Hathaway into a juggernaut. A few years ago, Charlie Munger shared the secret to his success and his companies. It's simplicity. I can't think of a single example in my whole life where keeping it simple has worked against us. We made mistakes, but they weren't because we kept it simple. Munger had a dry sense of humor. He didn't seek out the limelight. And he was a straight shooter. Lawrence Cunningham, a law professor at the George Washington University, says when something didn't sit well with Munger, he said so. I think Charlie's biggest contribution, besides being a good friend and that stuff, was knowing when Warren needed to be told not to do something. For that, Buffett gave Munger the nickname the Abominable No-Man. The two of them met in 1959. 
Munger had been in the Army. He'd graduated from Harvard Law. And according to David Cass, a finance professor at the University of Maryland, they were introduced by a doctor in their hometown of Omaha, Nebraska. They hit it off immediately. Over the years, Munger encouraged Buffett to move beyond value investing, where you buy shares when the price is low compared to the company's fundamental value. Munger also believed in the power of trusted brands. Berkshire Hathaway made large investments in household names, including Kraft Heinz, Bank of America, and Coca-Cola. Its portfolio has included car companies, grocery stores, and insurers. Buffett may have been better known, but Cass says Munger played a big role in what was a really unique partnership. Value investors, when they look at Berkshire, they say Warren and Charlie. They don't just say Warren. At Berkshire Hathaway's famous annual meetings in Omaha, the marquee event was when Buffett and Munger sat on stage, fielding questions from shareholders. Buffett would talk at length, then Munger would chime in with a one-liner. In 2019, at the end of a five-hour Q&A, Munger and Buffett reflected on how lucky they'd been and on the success they'd had. Think of all the people you know that have tried to take one extra step and have fallen off a cliff. Well, on that happy note, we will conclude the meeting. <laughs> Unlike Buffett, Munger left Omaha for California, where he pursued a few side projects. He bought and ran another company called The Daily Journal. He was a philanthropist, and he designed buildings, including his own home. When Munger was well into his 90s, he told CNBC he lived by a handful of simple rules. You don't have a lot of resentment. You don't overspend your income. You stay charitable in spite of your troubles. You deal with reliable people and you do what you're supposed to do. And for him, that was staying away from fads and being a careful, cautious investor. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. ALPrime.com and AAF CPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. In times of crises, journalism plays a vital role. I'm Lisa Mullins. At WBUR and NPR, our job is to ferret out the facts and report the fullest version of the truth possible, challenge assumptions, hold officials to account, bear witness, and tell the stories of those with the most at stake. We can't do our job without your help. Make your year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. You're with WBUR on a Wednesday morning. Here at Morning Edition, we are your companion as you get ready for work, maybe as you make lunches and take the kids to school. We make it possible for you to do what you need to do and learn about what you need to know about the world at the same time. Like the story you just heard about climate change and you just actually heard about um, what's going on in Israel and Hamas. It's a fast-changing situation that you want to stay up to date on, and we make it possible for you to do that while getting done what you need to get done for your day. And all of that comes to you and your community for free, except it's not for free. People around you give in order to keep it going, and that is what makes WBUR possible. We need you to join them, especially now when we are in a race to raise $20,000 by 9 o'clock this morning. We have about 34 minutes to make that goal. 
ask yourself what part of that you can give and step up and go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You will have the satisfaction of knowing that you are doing your part to make possible what you hear on WBUR every morning throughout the day, seven days a week, possible. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with reporter Deb Becker. How about dumplings? That's what I'm going to say. How about dumplings? Because we have a terrific thank you gift right now for $12 a month. Your contribution of $12 a month. We will send you, as our thanks, a dumpling-making class uh, from May May Dumplings. So if you've ever had these, uh, you know they're wonderful. How about learning how to make them? It could be something that you want to do for fun. It could be a great holiday gift. We will send that in time for you to give that as a gift for the holidays. It's a dumpling-making class at their factory in South Boston. You'll learn how to do it from the experts at Maymay. And we spoke with uh, Maymay co-founder uh, Irene Lee about this class. Let's listen. When you sign up for a class, you come into the factory. You get to pick out your filling. We have vegetarian, vegan, and gluten-free options. And then you sit down with us and maybe some new friends or old friends who you've brought with you. And we really focus on making different dumpling shapes. We teach between 8 and 12 shapes in every class. Then we move on to the pan searing process, which is my favorite way to cook dumplings. We make sauce. We have a sauce bar where you can experiment with different flavor combinations. And then, of course, we eat dumplings and send you home with some, too. Those classes are available in the evenings, during the week, on the weekends, during the day and the evenings on the weekends. They're available virtually. And man, I I did not know that there are different dumpling shapes, but I definitely knew about the pan searing and I love that. I would love to know how to do that because I've tried multiple times and I just fail absolutely every Mm -hmm. single time. So these are dumplings with Chinese and New England flavors. There's plenty of flexibility and again you heard her say what goes into these dumplings and you'll have plenty of leftovers out of the classes to take home. That again is a gift of $12 a month when you contribute that to WBUR or a one-time contribution of $144. You'll be able to take those classes and you'll also have the satisfaction of knowing your you're making possible everything you depend on WBUR to bring you every morning. And think about that. That's news about Governor Healy's administration, Mayor Wu's policies and priorities, the housing crisis, the situation at Mass and Cass that Deb has been just so dedicated in reporting on. Nationally, the unpredictable road to the White House in 2024. You will be depending on us on to know what's going on because yeah, there's an election coming up. And that is when people turn to public radio for an unbiased source of news. Make that possible. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We also have a sweepstakes going on, a really exciting sweepstakes going on during this uh, year-end fun drive. Give now. You'll be entered in the sweepstakes to win a trip anywhere, anywhere in the world. It's a $10,000 customized trip you design it, someone's going to win it, and it might be you. But really what we're asking you to do is give us the money so we can keep bringing you the important stories, helping chronicle the events of the world. We'll do this with depth and sensitivity, but we need the resources. We need your pledge. 1-800-909-9287 is the number. The website's wbur.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. 
Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to update software promptly. More at CISA.gov slash secureourworld. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to push for another extension of the pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas when he returns to the Middle East this week. means that more hostages would be coming home, more assistance uh, would be getting in. So clearly, that's something we want, uh, and I believe it's also something that, uh, that Israel wants. Blinken was speaking to reporters in Brussels following meetings about the war in Ukraine. This is day six of the pause between Israel and Hamas. It was extended from the original four-day agreement earlier this week to allow for more exchanges of hostages, prisoners, and detainees. Hamas is expected to release more hostages today. Israel is scheduled to free more Palestinians from Israeli jails. Hamas released 12 more hostages yesterday. Israel released another 30 Palestinians. Ahmad Hassoum Ahmad Khalil's brother is among the 180 Palestinians released by Israel since Friday. He says his brother was taken into custody by Israeli troops about a year and a half ago, accused of having links to Hamas. Imagine you're sleeping and uh, suddenly wake up with uh, dozens of soldiers in your house. Um, Yeah, it was uh, really scary. He was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The state is creating a new position to oversee its response to climate change along the coast. The role will be called the Chief Coastal Resilience Officer. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll says that person will have to get the state's 78 coastal communities to work together. There's no way individual cities and towns can tackle this. There's no way that you have the know-how, the expertise, the combination of resources, the thinking that goes into how do we build better coastal communities? How do we protect and preserve these precious assets? Massachusetts has more than 1,500 miles of coastline. The state is expected to face about a foot of sea level rise by 2050. That's the same amount it's gone up in the last century. Former State Representative Peter Durant will be sworn in as a state senator today. The Worcester area Republican resigned his House seat yesterday. He won a special election earlier this month, flipping the seat from Democrat to Republican. He'll be just one of four Republicans out of 40 members in the Senate. Taylor Swift is starting a new era at Harvard. The school says it'll offer a course this spring centered around the pop star. It's called Taylor Swift and Her World. It'll examine Swift's songwriting and the culture around her fandom of Swifties. Harvard is just the latest school offering coursework inspired by the superstar. Berklee College of Music began offering its Songs of Taylor Swift course in the fall. It's 834. We are funded by you, our listeners. And by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. 
Visit BlueCrossMA.com slash go. The Celtics beat the Chicago Bulls 124-97 last night at the Garden. With the win, Boston advanced to the quarterfinals of, of the in-season tournament. The C's next game is Friday at home against the Sixers. It'll grow increasingly overcast today. High temperatures will only be in the upper 30s. Partly cloudy tonight, and it falls to the upper 20s. Warmer tomorrow with highs in the mid-40s, and it'll be sunny. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Austin, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, the Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com slash share. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. President Biden is focusing on his domestic agenda today. Yeah, he's traveling to Pueblo, Colorado to tout his administration's investment in clean energy jobs and is expected to take some swipes at right-wing Republicans. NPR White House correspondent Deepa Shivaram is in Colorado with Biden. Hey, Deepa. Hey, Layla. So why Pueblo? What's going on there? Yeah, well, there's a couple reasons. First, he's going to visit a plant owned by the largest wind turbine tower manufacturer in the world. The South Korean-based company is called CS Wind, and they say that thanks to Biden's major climate and jobs bill, they're adding hundreds of jobs in the state in the next few years. And secondly, Pueblo is in Colorado's third congressional district, which is represented by right-wing Republican Lauren Boebert. She's one of former Trump's biggest supporters and has been a prominent critic of President Biden, particularly on this climate and jobs bill, which she says should be repealed. So that's why Biden is in Pueblo today, to prop up his big legislative wins and to, as you said earlier, take a swipe at right-wing Republicans he's been so critical of. Biden is expected to talk about how he thinks Boebert and Republicans like her are a threat to the progress that he says his administration has made. Now, we've heard Biden criticize right-wing lawmakers. He calls them MAGA Republicans repeatedly, but he doesn't often go after individual members like this in their own district. What's the thinking here? This is an interesting move. I talked to Adam Green, who leads the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. It's a left-leaning political advocacy organization. He's been meeting with the White House and White House officials lately to talk about the president's economic messaging. And he says one of the things Democrats need to do more of is lean into the fight on issues with extreme Republicans, whether it's about health care or jobs or the economy. In order for the public to understand the difference between Democrats and Republicans on things like jobs or lower price prescription drugs, We need to see a fight. And Green says that, generally speaking here, people love drama. It gets more attention. (laughs) And he says for Biden to go to Congresswoman Boebert's district and pick a fight with her specifically is a good strategy because of how loudly critical she is of Biden. So this particular trip in in particular might be uh, outsized in its influence and is is a good down payment on a larger strategy of picking smart fights with Republicans. 
This idea that we've been talking about of drawing contrasts with Republicans is something that we've heard the White House try to do when it comes to selling Biden's economic agenda. But this is definitely a more pointed way of going about it. And you have to keep in mind, Layla, this comes at a time when recent polls have shown that the public still doesn't approve of how Biden has been handling the economy. So 11 months out from the election, it'll be interesting to see how this larger strategy here of picking smart fights, as Adam Green says, could impact public opinion, especially because this district has a really tight race. In 2022, it was super close. So it's a potential place for Democrats to flip the seat blue next year. Now, this trip was supposed to happen last month, but got postponed because of the crisis in the Middle East. Does this mean Biden is turning his attention back to domestic issues now? Yeah, that's right. The president was supposed to make this trip out in about mid-October, but canceled at the last minute. But the White House says the president's been working across, quote, a range of issues. In addition to this Colorado trip, he's traveling more domestically in the coming weeks. Uh, They just announced two upcoming trips to Philadelphia and the Boston area. I will note, though, that during this trip in, in Colorado, you know, the conflict in the Middle East is still top of mind. There are still protesters that are calling for an end to U.S. aid to Israel, that the president's motorcade has passed by. Of course, We've seen some folks who are also supportive of the president as well. And as Michelle Kalman just noted, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to the Middle East today, which is the last day of the extended ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. NPR White House correspondent Deepa Shivaram. Thanks so much. Thank you. There's a number that will be a focus over the next two weeks, 1.5 degrees Celsius. World leaders have agreed that's the limit for how much the planet can warm before the extremes of climate change become insurmountable. But countries are not on track to meet that limit, and they'll discuss this at negotiations in Dubai that begin tomorrow. So what would the U.S. look like if warming goes beyond that temperature? Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk is here to tell us, Lauren, so if the world goes past 1.5 degrees to 2 or 2.5 degrees Celsius, that difference might seem small on paper, and it sounds small when I just said it, but what would it actually look like on the ground? Right, yeah, I mean, half a degree kind of seems minor, but it makes a massive difference in terms of extreme weather in the U.S., and, you know, as a result, the cost to lives and property. Because, you know, that number, 1.5 Celsius, which is 2.7 Fahrenheit, it's an average. It takes into account all the temperatures across the planet all year. But warming doesn't happen evenly. And the U.S. is actually heating up faster than that. So does that mean if the planet goes beyond 1.5 degrees of warming, the U.S. would get hotter than that? Yeah, exactly. So say the world reaches three degrees Celsius, which is five and a half Fahrenheit, Parts of the U.S., like Alaska and northern states, would heat up much more, twice as much in some cases. And when it's hotter, that affects the severity of the weather, like extreme storms. Yeah, the U.S. has seen some very destructive hurricanes in recent years. Would that trend keep getting worse? Yeah, hurricanes, tropical storms are getting more intense. But, you know, so are storms in general, because a hotter atmosphere, it can hold more water vapor. I talked to Deanna Hentz, an assistant professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and she says that means clouds can drop more rain. Every time we have a heavy rainfall event, it's more likely to be even heavier than what we're typically used to seeing. Hence says, you know, that could mean 30 to 40 percent more rain in the eastern U.S. from those extreme storms. 
And that can overwhelm storm drains and infrastructure, and that causes flooding even if you don't live next to a river. Wow. I know the U.S. Uh, saw some pretty extreme heat waves this year. How much worse do you think those could get if the Earth warms, say, more than 1.5 degrees Celsius? Yeah, right. I mean, that trend keeps going. So if the world warms two degrees Celsius, the southern U.S. could see more than 30 extra days above 95. That's a month more of days like that. And cold days start disappearing, too. The Mountain West could lose 20 to 30 days where it's below freezing. Wow. All right. So world leaders meet this week to negotiate how to avoid a future like this. Is it inevitable, really, at this point that the Earth goes beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius? Yeah, I mean, if countries don't change course, so if we keep burning fossil fuels at the same rate, it looks like the planet will go beyond 1.5 sometime in the next decade. You know, the window of time to avoid that is shrinking. But Deepti Singh, who is an assistant professor at Washington State University, says, you know, it's not too late. We have control over our future. We're not destined to some catastrophic climate. We know that we can have a future that is more equitable and less volatile if we limit the warming through our actions today. She says every fraction of a degree matters to limit the impacts of climate change. You know, it's not all or nothing. So 1.6 is just as important as 1.5 degrees when it comes to the planet's future. That's Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk. Lauren, thank you. Thanks. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC, and the School of the Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts University, hosting its 45th annual art sale December 8th through the 10th. More at smfa.tufts.edu. Climate change dominated the headlines this year. Wildfires stoked by Hurricane Dora spread across the island of Maui. A dangerously large plume of moisture known as an atmospheric river slams into the region. But there were also stories of hope. This hotline helps people figure out how to save important objects and buildings after disasters. Invest in the future of climate change coverage on NPR and this station. Here's how. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'll do it again, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. You're with Morning Edition on WBUR on a Wednesday morning, and we're in our year-end fundraiser. We only have 15 minutes left to get to our goal of raising $20,000 by 9 o'clock this morning. So think about everything you get from WBUR every hour of every day and think about what part of that you can step up and give. We need to make these goals to make sure we are where we need to be in this fundraiser and you are a big part of that. If it's $10 or $100 or $1,000, whatever you can give, whatever is right for you, it will have a big impact for us just by moving us toward our goal and we will be so grateful. If it is in your capability to give more like 500 or 
or 2,000 or 5,000 to fuel this journalism you rely on, again, we will be so grateful and it will move us in the right direction. You'll have the satisfaction of knowing you did what you could to keep this service coming to you and your community. And every time you listen, you'll know you made what you hear possible. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with reporter Deb Becker. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. We've got, what, about 14 minutes left to make that goal. Help us do it with your pledge. And, and think about what we were just talking about, climate change coverage. Here at WBUR, we created an entire unit, an environmental unit, uh, to focus on stories about the environment and about climate. And we did this because we know that this issue needs sophistication. Mm -hmm. It needs expertise to be able to cover it well, to be able to cover these stories deeply and bring you really useful information to improve your understanding of how this is affecting all of us, really. This is what we do with the money that you give us during Mm -hmm. these fundraisers, with your gifts. And we're asking you to make a gift now so we can continue to expand and improve and fine-tune our coverage and to consider how to deliver it to you on uh, multiple platforms so you can access it most conveniently. This is where your money goes. You can hear it being put to good use every single day. So whatever you can do right now, do your part. Make that pledge. Maybe it's $12 a month and you'll get a dumpling-making class (laughs) at May May as our thanks. Maybe you'll win the sweepstakes to win a trip anywhere in the world. But whatever you do, you'll know that you're contributing to solid, independent journalism for this community. Please give now. Listening to WBUR really gives me a precise understanding of what's going on in a very short amount of time. I get a little smarter every time I listen and I learn all types of different information. It's the sort of programming that helps me understand myself and helps me understand the world around me better. I want to be able to participate in conversations and really contribute to what's going on around me and in the world and and just to be conscious about what's happening in my life. It's just an opportunity to learn about so many different subjects, learn about different places in the world that I never would otherwise have been exposed to. For all the ways WBUR enriches your life, give monthly at WBUR.org. Those are some key words there, enriches your life. That is what WBUR does absolutely every single day with our mix of news and arts coverage and environmental coverage, everything we think you want to know, you need to know, we try and deliver it to you absolutely every single day. And this is when we come back to you and say, we need your help to make this possible. There is only 12 minutes left to make this goal of $20,000 by nine o'clock. We do not make these goals arbitrarily. We need to make these goals in order to end this fundraiser where it needs to be. Do your part. Think about what you can do. And when you give say $12 a month or a one-time gift of $144 a month, you'll get a, you can choose to get a dumpling class at the Dumpling Factory in South Boston and learn how to make dumplings from Chef Irene Lee. It's super fun gift and it's dumplings, which are wonderful. They're perhaps the best thing in the world. So support the news and get dumplings. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and thank you.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Consumers spent a small fortune over the past few days as the post-Thanksgiving holiday shopping spree began. WBUR's Arena Machavariani reports the vibe has been calmer here in Massachusetts than in some previous years, even as more people are hunting for deals. Overnight campouts and wrestling matches for a new TV. Those are scenes from Black Friday's past. This year, more consumers snack deals from the comfort of their homes. Since Black Friday, Americans have shelled out a whopping $38 billion online, according to Adobe Analytics. Many people also chose the traditional, hands-on approach to shopping. We arrived early, and even when we left, we left about 4 o'clock, and there was a massive queue of cars still trying to get in. That's Helena Gifford, visiting from Scotland for a shopping trip with friends. She says they lined up with the crowds to get into the Rentham outlets on Friday. Nationally, more than 76 million shoppers showed up to browse stores on Black Friday. The weekend days were slower for the brick-and-mortar stores. Lynn Pino from Fall River was at Quincy Market to celebrate her niece's 18th birthday. She was surprised by the leisurely pace. We even found street parking today. It just seems a little less busy than previous years. New Hampshire resident Emma Connolly came to Quincy Market to hang out with family and ended up scoring a couple of good deals. She says she liked not having to wait in lines. Really, there's no punches being thrown over deals here today. The Massachusetts Retailers Association has been predicting only a 1% increase in sales this holiday season due to inflation and high interest rates. The association will survey the local performance later this week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavadiani. Black women, on average, hold more student debt than any other group and often have a harder time paying it off. We have the story now of a borrower who is doing everything she can to avoid becoming part of that statistic. WBEZ's Lisa Corian Phillip joined her for lunch outside her office in the Chicago suburbs. 30-year-old Brianna Kidd is chowing down on some delicious-looking homemade pasta. It's like a spinach linguine, and then I took a bunch of multicolored peppers. I ask if she's always known how to cook. No, but that's why you have the internet. (laughs) Now she cooks most days, an effort to save money. Brianna graduated college in 2015 with a bachelor's degree in psychology and $42,000 in student debt. She started working and making loan payments right away. But after three years, she realized most of it goes to interest and then barely goes to principal. She'd barely made a dent in her overall debt. Panic ensued. (laughs) I'm saying it like I'm reading a novel. (laughs) A year after finishing college, black women owe nearly $39,000 on average in student debt. That's more than any other demographic, according to the Education Trust, a nonprofit that advocates for education equity. And because of gender and racial pay gaps, college-educated Black women like Brianna often earn much less than their peers. The racial wealth gap they face is even bigger. 
all of this means they have a harder time paying back their loans. When it comes to this aspect of my life with these student loans, I refuse to be the statistic. I want to be the outlier, and I will be that. Five years ago, in a little notebook, Brianna wrote down how much she needed to earn to pay off her loans as quickly as possible. I started working two jobs to try to make these ends meet and also to be able to save. She moved in with her dad. I don't have my own house. I don't have my own apartment, but I don't have to pay for rent and utilities all by myself. She cut back on eating out, even at Potbelly's, her absolute favorite spot. Then, when the pandemic started, Brianna saw an opportunity. Interest was paused, most people stopped making payments, but Brianna doubled down. Pay a lump sum of like two grand on another one, just knock another one out, knock another one out. All that money went directly toward her loan principles. She brought her balance from 37,000 at the start of the pandemic to 10,000 as of early October when the payment pause ended. Brianna recognizes not many are in the position to do what she did, no matter how badly they may want to. My story isn't a one-size-fits-all for everyone. She still works two jobs as a claims adjuster and an insurance agent. So when she's finished working her nine to five, she'll go home and work some more. And she still lives with her dad. But she's so close to being debt-free. With some help from local WBEZ listeners, she's now on track to pay off all her student loans in 12 months or less. I can't wait. I'm so excited to be done with this because then I get to start my life. I get to have my life back. Brianna dreams of buying a house with enough kitchen counter space to cook meals with her favorite spices, smoked paprika and cumin. And she wants two bathrooms. I'm tired of waiting for someone who's already in the one bathroom and I'm talking about full. Well, I guess I could have a half. No, give me two full bathrooms. And she wants a two car garage and a grassy yard. Brianna thinks she can start saving up for a down payment after her debt is gone. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Corian-Phillip in Chicago. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I believe real journalism is essential to our daily life and our collective future. I believe public radio is one of the last great hopes for journalism in our country. If you believe these things too, then I'm asking you to start a monthly contribution to WBUR. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, maybe just $10 to $15 a month. It'll go a long way to protect one of life's essentials. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Deb Becker, reporter extraordinaire. We are running out of time. We are working toward a goal of raising $20,000 by 9 o'clock, and we only have three minutes left. We need you to take action now to become part of the community that makes this service possible 
every single day. Listeners make up the largest share of our funding. We need you to be one of them. Ask yourself how much of this goal you can help us toward and go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's Deb. You know, we're so lucky here at WBUR. We're lucky to have you as listeners and be a part of this community because we've been fortunate. We've been able to grow and we've been able to evolve and adapt and to bring you our content in so many different ways. To bring you our journalism, whether it's on your phone or whether it's streaming on your computer or all of the different ways you can listen and read about what we're doing, what we're covering, we're here for you. We're asking you to be there for us because really the only limits on our future growth and expansion it really, our our funding. <laughs> it's our funding. And that funding comes from you. If we have the resources, we'll keep growing. We'll keep making it more convenient for you. We'll keep covering the big stories. We created an investigative unit that just did an amazing investigation on vacancies in public housing. Mm-hmm. We have our arts team giving you advice about what to do for the weekend. We have newsletters now that we never had before. All of this is because of you, our listeners. We're asking you to make a pledge now during this fundraiser and help us have the continued resources to grow and continue to refine our journalism to better serve you. And we'll give you a terrific thank you gift. How about a $12 a month contribution? Because if you can do that, $12 a month, that's $3 a week. I paid more than my more than that for my coffee this morning. I saw that coffee. Yeah, you saw that big coffee. So it's $3 a week for the news here on WBUR. And as our thanks, we'll send you a dumpling making class at Maymay. Terrific, right? Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to remind people here, though, that we have a minute. <laughs> we have a minute to reach this goal of $20,000 by 9 o'clock. We really need to meet these goals in order to get where we need to be in this fundraiser. We are running out of time. We need you to take action. If you can, take a minute, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We know it's a tough time for a lot of people. We want you to give what you are comfortable with. If that is $500 or $1,000, we will be so grateful and it will move us toward our goal and help us continue to bring you the important news that you rely on from us absolutely every single morning. We have lots of ways to say thank you when you give. This morning we're highlighting the May May dumpling classes that you can take when you give $12 a month or a one-time gift of $144. That's a dumpling class at the Dumpling Factory classroom in South Boston. There are vegan and gluten-free options. You'll learn how to make all the shapes and do the searings from Chef Irene Lee. And your gift will make it possible for us to bring you more of the high-quality journalism you rely on, and you will learn how to make these little pockets of love. So please, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Dedicated to ocean research, technology, and education. Currently seeking innovators, engineers, and explorers to help advance ocean science and technology for the global good. Discover career opportunities in your field at whoi.edu team. And the Lyric Stage with Ken Ludwig's The Game's Afoot. This comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th, lyricstage.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 
92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.